Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Today's episode is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave Social is a marketing agency based out of Los Angeles that can help your company grow online, whether it's getting a bigger social media following, more engagement, or using social media to drive sales to your business, Cave Social can help. So head over to www.cavesocial.com, hit that contact us, and see how they can help your business. All right, today I'm sitting with Chad Byers. Chad Byers is the co-founder of Sousa Ventures. They actually led the seed round for a bunch of companies, but most notably Robinhood. We get into really the VC world, how a company can innovate and disrupt itself, and some of the attitudes that they take to really not only position themselves as the venture capital arm to early stage companies, but also as a long-term partner. Uh, really cool story. I enjoy talking with Chad. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. All right, enjoy. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, I'm sitting with Chad Byers. He is co-founder and general partner at Sousa Ventures, where he focuses on investments and marketplaces, fintech, and healthcare. Chad led Sousa investments in Robinhood, Andela, New Front Insurance, Stored and More. Born raised Silicon Valley, that been totally surrounded by entrepreneurship and venture capital. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. So that's a you know tip of the iceberg when it comes to your story. Tell me more about your story in entrepreneurship, and then you know what led you to to start Sousa Ventures and where you're at today. Awesome. Probably with every story like this, it starts with luck, and that starts from the inception for me. So being raised in Silicon Valley, as you alluded to, was something very special, and most of that was just being around entrepreneurship and startups from the very get go. There are stories that. I've only come to appreciate, but I was an early tinker on eBay when it first launched and I was kind of flipping beanie babies and long story short on, on all these products that we take for granted today and early kind of web 1.0 companies. As a teenager, I was fiddling with how to build businesses on them, et cetera. And so that love of entrepreneurship and startups took me to the operating side. After college, I worked at a company called Silver Spring Networks, which was building IT infrastructure for electric utility companies, essentially trying to bring electric utilities onto the internet. And that was an amazing job. It was four years there. I got to see it go from 10 people to a couple hundred people and eventually go to an IPO and just an incredible experience. And my first taste of what kind of what fantastic management looked like. I had an incredible boss there. Shortly thereafter, I moved to New York City and worked in advertising technology. And that's really where I got a deep dive in marketing, both from a performance advertising, which was kind of early days on the internet, backing into you know, specific CACs and stuff like that but also the, the value of brand advertising and storytelling for a product. And so I got to see kind of the whole gamut and I was running a sales and marketing team at that company. At the time, I started doing some angel investing. This was in 2013. I was about 25 and fell in love with it. And I found myself thinking about investing more than operating and wanting to help many companies that want to cross a bunch of sectors, start their business and get from zero to one and raise additional financing. And so I did that as an angel for a little while. And Shortly thereafter, decided to co-found Sousa Ventures, which is the firm I'm at now about eight years later, and we'll talk more about. But it's been a blast and a, and a wonderful ride. We've backed about 110 companies over the last eight years across a bunch of different sectors and have seen everything that can go right from the Robin Hoods and Flexports and Indellas of the world and a bunch of things that can go wrong. Great people, but wrong product, wrong time, wrong market. 
and all that. And we try to bring all those learnings to bear for every new additional company we back. And it's been a blast. That's awesome. And one of the things too, that in so many sectors, and like you said, 110 companies, that you can take those learnings that when you invest in the 111th company, right? And take some of those lumps and maybe avoid those the next time around or or really look at that, those growth triggers that worked with some of your portfolio companies and help advise, which is what I want to talk about is when you're looking at your team and and if you're working with you know founders really what do you do to keep a growth mindset instilled in your team and then also you know with the the founders and stuff you're working with yeah and i'll kind of touch on both of those i'll start with our team first because that's near and dear to my heart and and then uh, we have quite a special team there's really two mantras that we operate with at susa ventures the first is innovate or die and we're in an industry that's been around for a long time, and many would argue actually hasn't had that much innovation in the venture capital world. And the way we think about it is there's just so many businesses today starting in our space and others that are going to challenge us. And so why don't we just challenge ourselves and be open to trying new models and cannibalizing parts of our business and trying to do things differently? I think the second one is embrace failure. And they got a good lot of inspiration out of this from some of the stuff that Google X, their kind of incubator was was talking about and some of the culture they set there, which is this idea of embracing failure. And what it means is allowing your team to fail. And only by allowing people to fail, do you allow them to actually push the limits and test new things and iterate and try to build other things. And you have to differentiate between, you know, good failure and bad failure. And I think that's relatively easy to do. Good failure is in the pursuit of progress and bad failure is due to poor performance. But if you separate those having a culture that's all about testing and progressing. And if you fail, learning from that and moving on. So I think those are the two we keep internally to keep a growth mindset. I think with our portfolio companies, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a bunch of things we do, but I think the thing that we probably have the best impact on our portfolio and helping with this is just setting really clear milestones and KPIs for the companies. And this all gets into kind of company planning and the role we have as advisors and board members, and et cetera. But really saying at the moment we make an investment, let's sit down for a couple hours and project out over the next 12, 18, and 24 months how cash flow is going to look over that time. What are the key KPIs this business should care about? And let's all agree on what those KPIs are. And then let's set milestones that we're checking in on every three months on how we're progressing against those KPIs. And when, when everyone's on the same page with that level of clarity, it's really clear to understand for everyone around the table, like where we are in growth, right? And, and constantly thinking about the inputs that affect each KPI helps everyone around the table keep that growth mindset going. I love it. And there's two things there, you know, that I pulled out one with your own team and really saying, hey, we need to disrupt ourselves. And, and in that, you know, allow for good failure in the pursuit of company growth and really looking at ways, what are the, you know, deficiencies in our own business that we can innovate on so that we don't lose out to some, you know, a competitor. And I think the listeners can benefit from that in their own businesses and own departments to say, okay, where can we, you know, disrupt ourselves? And then two, this idea of, okay, let's say, let's set the KPIs and then let's just reverse engineer right? What, okay, here's our clear target and reverse engineering backwards to say, okay, what do we need to do to start to get these? Are the efforts that we're putting forward helping us, you know, get to the KPIs? Or are they taking us in a different direction? So I think those are uh, very, very powerful. Now, speaking of KPIs, can you tell me about, you know, something you did where you, the company launched something and it didn't really return the standard KPIs, you know, that you were looking for, but you thought it was a really valuable lesson for you or your team? 
Yeah. So as a venture firm, you know, we don't run kind of campaigns quite like one of our portfolios will, or I've done in my past as an operator. But I think I'll give an example that speaks to this question a little bit, which is, so Sousa Ventures is actually named after a mountain gorilla family in Rwanda. And if you, you know, most people are like, what the heck is that all about? A financial firm with, with that type of naming. And the story is actually quite interesting. You can think of naming kind of like a campaign in that when we were thinking about our firm name and we were starting it, we came up with all these names that we thought were more appropriate venture names probably a little bit more down the fairway. So like range ventures, and peak ventures and stuff like this. And at the time of we needed to incorporate, which was like 11 p.m. the night before, every name <laughs> we had come up with that we liked was taken in Delaware. And we kind of huddled up as a team and said, okay, we have to come up with a name. Uh, let's try to find something interesting. And oddly enough, the entire team had actually been to Rwanda and done this incredibly special trek to see these mountain gorillas. And so we ended up naming the firm Sousa Ventures and our logo, if people look it up, designed by this amazing guy I found on Dribble in Eastern Europe. It was probably the best ROI I've ever had. He designed this incredible, cool gorilla logo. And at the start, I think I was embarrassed about the logo itself. Uh, just thinking about, you know, as a campaign, would this resonate with our audiences and our market, et cetera. And fast forward eight years, it's probably the singularly most thing that people actually recognize or remember about our firm just because it's so different in our market. Uh, it actually adds to the differentiation. We have an animal logo. Many firms don't. This name is obscure. We can brand it however we want. It has no connotation with the word before. And it's turned into like maybe the greatest mistake we ever made. And we have all this clothing with the gorilla and it's kind of become a thing. And uh, it's one of those accidental mistakes that I that I think is super special. It's also like just from, and I'll put a photo of your, your logo in the show notes because it's, it's cool. And it has that cool factor that your, you know, your team can embrace, right? And it's got a connection to your team. There's a, there's a deeper story than just taking, like you said, like a, a range investment or taking some futuristic word and typing, putting ventures on the end. So I love stuff like that where it's a, uh, and you said you just found, found somebody in Eastern Europe, they did it. You walked through, as most people in the creative space do, unsure of what they've put out there. And then you look at almost a decade later and it's something that now you have as a symbol of pride. So very, very, very cool. Now, when we look at the whole landscape, right? And marketing, and I'm going to tie this into growth and, and tactics for growth, really is changing at a rapid pace. We're also seeing, obviously, COVID-19 is causing people to change marketing plans, uh, throw pretty much anything they had for Q3 out the window. I mean, how important do you think it is right now that companies really own their channels and own their messaging, opposed to using you know the rented channels and relying on those solely. So rented channels being social media or you know just straight paid channels doing things like if your business just relies solely on acquisition through AdWords. How important do you think it is to really build that community and build that followership on your own own channels? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. Actually, kind of dives into how we think as investors and, and the hat we wear every day. So we see about 2,000 companies a year. And they're in all these different sectors, as we've talked about. But a sector I know very well is in fintech. And I'll kind of say a point here and give some examples. When we look at fintech companies today, it's infinitely easier to build a company today than it was a decade ago in fintech. There's all these fantastic APIs and infrastructure that allows you to build an app better today than in the past. And a good example is what Plaid has done for the industry. So Plaid is an API tool that allows anyone to build a fintech app and they can pull money easily from a user's bank account. And so... 
what we found is as it's become easier to build a fintech app, there's more and more fintech apps out there. And the key question becomes, how do they all compete for the same types of users? There's hundreds of fintech apps going after, let's say, the 21 to 35-year-old demographic to help them manage their money. And so as we look at every new investment in this market, we think about what is their proprietary distribution channel? Do they have one? How are they thinking about customer acquisition? Do they have any metrics that kind of suggest that they have this unfair advantage? And it's a key, key question we focus on. So the short answer to your question is it's extremely important and is actually a huge guiding principle to how we make investment. The example I'll give here is actually Robinhood. So we invested in Robinhood in 2013. It was just two founders. They're fantastic, Vlad and Beju. And they had this vision for building, you know, how do we democratize access to the financial world for the younger de- generation um, through, you know, a free trading platform. And at the time they had an app, you couldn't even trade on it. They didn't have their broker dealer license yet, but it was a beautifully designed app and they had to tell the story about what they were building. And it's kind of hard to remember back to 2013, but there wasn't all of the fintech apps we know today. There wasn't even Cash App, there wasn't Chime, you know, Robinhood didn't exist, et cetera. The most well-known probably consumer fintech app at the time was called Mint.com, which sold into it. And it was mostly a web product. It wasn't really on mobile. And so what was unique about Robinhood is they actually didn't pay for a single user. Their value proposition of free stock trading worked so well. And as we all know, the greatest form of marketing is word of mouth. They got to millions of users without paying for an acquisition of a user. Now, fast forward today, we look at a ton of fintech apps because of our involvement in Robinhood. A lot of companies come to us and nearly all of them don't have that same like open market to say, hey, you know, no one can confidently say we're going to acquire users without having to pay because this market's so wide open. Everyone now is paying for SEM and social channels and all these things. And the cost of acquiring a fintech user has gone up astronomically. And so it's just something that's extremely important to think about. It's something we see a ton. We put into our investment process and it's heavily impacted just by the number of players in a specific market, et cetera. Um, I think the one other angle I'll say on the subject is We definitely get excited when a company comes to us and has some unique distribution or captive audience, right? Maybe the founder has built up a loyal following in their market over the last 10 years just through content, right? And they have a couple million followers on some platform that they can then, you know, cross promote into their new product. Things like this are really, really valuable and something we look closely at. It's so important to not only have the story, but have the people to tell it to as well, right? The empty movie theater, that movie's going to get no reviews. So it's looking at how, like you said, if you have a founder in place with millions of followers, okay, if the story's good and the story behind that company that they've just launched or the new product they've launched, is it, it, it's going to sink in, then great. You know, we're going to see some user acquisition. And it's interesting to see and hear how the landscape has changed so much from 2013, which seems like about 100 years ago now, <laughs> to where yeah. we're at today, right? With acquisition and also competition you know, for those users. Now, talk to me about what's next for, for you all at, at Sousa. What can we expect to see down the pipe that you can disclose, of course? Yeah. So the short story is our mission won't change, which is Our mission is to be the best place in the world an early stage founder goes for financing and company building help, right? I think how we deliver that is likely going to change. And this gets back to the original question you asked around, you know, what is the mantra? Well, it's innovate or die. How can we get really creative? And we'll talk about a couple things. One is how we think we can maintain our position in the market as a place founders want to come to. And so as a simple example, as I talked about, venture capital isn't necessarily known for innovation. 
But one thing we've done is we've broken down the process of the, the time a founder comes into our, our funnel. So the first time we meet a founder, whether it's a text intro, email intro, or whatever, to when we actually make a decision whether to partner or not with that founder. And obviously, we say no to 99% of ideas and, and say yes to 1%. But we've thought a lot about what is the experience a founder goes through with us? Every single touch point from the first email to setting up the first call to that first call to following up to diligence to how we prepare for each additional meeting while we're trying to understand and learn about the business. I think our industry has done a really poor job if we talk about net promoter score and, and the relationship a firm has with a founder as they're going through that process. I think it's traditionally a pretty poor experience. And so we've broken that down into 10 steps and tried to innovate and make sure the experience for the entrepreneur is as good as possible, right? Which means we're on top of our stuff. We are always on time. We're prepared for every meeting. We've done our homework. We've followed up. And I think like a hyper focus on those little things reverberates onto the market and kind of helps us think about how do we steadily grow with our audience, our customer, which is entrepreneurs and founders. So I think that's just kind of one example of the many types of little things we're trying to do. I think another, you know, another big push for us in our last fund, we've now raised three core funds. We just raised our third fund in 2019, which was a $90 million early stage fund. For the first time alongside that fund, we launched our opportunity fund. And this gets into kind of maybe some of the direction of the future of the firm, which is we partner with companies at the seed stage, the earliest stages of them building the businesses. And that's just frankly where we like to build and play. We like to work with entrepreneurs and roll up sleeves and build companies. But we realized that we were doing all this work and we are part of these really special businesses. Like we want to back them forever. We want to be shareholders and, and continue to buy more shares in these businesses for the long haul. And so this opportunity fund allows us to buy equity in these businesses well past the seed in series A and the series B and C and D into the future. And so that gives you a little lens into where we're going as a firm, which is we want to be partners for these founders for the very long haul, call it 10 plus years. If uh, they're building such special businesses, I think if you think about investors across all asset classes, one of the biggest mistakes people do is they underappreciate the ability for, for special companies to compound over the long term. If you look at what Apple or, or Amazon has done over the last 25 years, that's a good example. And hopefully we're helping build some of those enduring companies. And so we want to be in those businesses for a long time. And that, you know, we have to figure out how to architect our firm to allow that. So that's kind of a, a big push of where we're going as a firm and thinking a lot about. I love it. No, and I love that mindset, which will transcend downward to say, hey, you know, we're not just a vehicle for cash to get you off the ground, but we're looking at long-term partnership and want to, you know, grow alongside the company. So I think that's uh refreshing and uh, a new and a really good you know position and something to have really in the DNA of the company so very very cool well Chad thanks for coming on the show before I let you go let people know where they can learn more about Sousa and connect with you online yeah so SousaVentures.com is the the website for the firm at Sousa Ventures on Twitter and then me personally I'm at Chad Byers on Twitter those are probably the best places to meet us email is chad at SousaVentures.com we love thinking about and looking at new businesses. So to the extent that there's entrepreneurs listening to this, would love to chat with folks and uh, really appreciate the time today. This has been awesome. No, likewise. Thanks for coming on. And guys, you got the contact there. I'll also put those links in the show note page. As always, thanks for listening at the bottom of your podcast app. Please hit like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I'll catch you next episode. Um, 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 um.